How y'all feel out there? Oh, yeah. All right. All right. Check this out. One, two, three. In the place to be, as it is plain to see. He is DJ Run, and I am DMC. Funky Fresh for 1983. DJ Jam Master J. Inside the place with all the bass. He leaves without a trace, and he came here tonight to get on your case. And we are the crush grooving, the body moving, the record making, and the record breaking. And it goes a little something like this. It goes a one, two, three, and here we go. Good afternoon. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, Colson Whitehead. Colson, welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me back. <laughs> well, it wasn't actually me. <laughs> well, this should be the institution of the but of think, WCBN, yeah. yes, right? Yeah. yeah. And and do you find it much changed since your last visit here? Well, you know, it seems to be more graffiti on the walls. Um, <laughs> and on the table. On the table, but it's still the same pleasant place I was three years ago. Mm, we have new air ducts, so probably oh. your lungs are perhaps happier. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think I was, I was still smoking back then, so I was probably chain smoking a lot more. So, yeah. Oh, so, so who's to even, you can't. Yes, I have nothing to judge it with. <laughs> right. So, how's the not smoking going? It's all right. You know, I mean, I, I, I've gone for like a year, a year and a half before, so it's been like since the election. On November 2nd, I was like, if Obama wins, I'll quit smoking. <laughs> and then he won. So that was disappointing. Um, but on I, but a I, personal <laughs> level, on a pers- of course. <laughs> <laughs> but I haven't smoked since then. <laughs> well, well, Colson, before we... Congratulations. But um, before we go any further, I'm going to read your, your short bio from the back of your book, because you're here in town, you're visiting um, surely, Ann Arbor surely. with your latest novel, Sag mm-hmm. Harbor. And, and this is the biography in the back. Colson Whitehead is the author of the novels The Intuitionist, a finalist for the Penn Hemingway Award. John Henry Days, which won the Young Lions Fiction Award, the Annisfield Wolf Book Award, and was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, and Apex Hides the Hurt, a New York Times notable book and winner of the Penn Oakland Award. He has also written The Colossus of New York, a book of essays about his hometown, a recipient of a Whiting Writers Award and a MacArthur Fellowship, the genius grant, right? Uh, He lives in Brooklyn. Look at your big brain, Colson. Well, the thing is, you know, I, I sort of, you know, doing the, biography, doing the author's bio was always like sort of anxiety producing things. Like sometime you're like, oh, I'm just like going on about nice things that have happened. And then so you, you overcompensate by being like, Colson White it exists in New York City. He's a writer. And so I go between like being super terse and not giving any information and then giving too much information but you know so i don't know so but you know the whole the whole what what's your author photo like and that's always just a whole useless uh time suck unfortunately yeah do you but maybe you have people who you trust that can help you with that because sometimes we can be blind to i don't know these things right well you know with the with the bio you know instead of anything with my author photo definitely over the years i've made some mistakes like my first one <laughs> i have like uh you know i look really intense and that's because uh, Don DeLillo's Don DeLillo's Underworld had just come out, and his author photo is like really, you know, it looks like he's gonna 
take a hatchet to somebody's face. And so I figured that was like what you should look like. That's the look. You should just have this sort of psychotic stare. So that's what I was going for for with that one. And then this time I figured uh, I had a friend who was a photographer and I got a professional picture done. And my publicist, the publicist at Doubleday, who never said anything about my photos, was like, thank God. <laughs> so, you know, there's, uh, that's a nice, you know, nice sort of photo we have now. And I was looking at your website, Colson. Um, is it is it colsonwhitehead.org? Yeah, it's counterintuitive, but it's actually, that's, yeah, yeah that's, that's what it is. <laughs> And, and on it, you, you, you kind of have these, these great like moments that you're quite self-effacing in them. And you say that the, one of the best pictures um, was in the New York Times recently. And you said it's from far away. Yeah, it's a full body shot. You can't really see my face. And it's really a, a really lovely, well done. On the docks. It's yeah. really, it is nice composition. Yes. Right? Yeah. Um, so anyway, we're talking about all these visual things. So let's get back to radio, radio matters and words and... Um, and and fill in a little bit more of your biography, because um, you were like you mentioned, you were here three years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, for but, Apex Signs of the Hurt. Ah uh, yes, but um, I wish I had seen those earlier author photos because I've seen the one of you eating a hamburger, I think, online. <laughs> but but I have missed the 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 Axe Man photo. It's there. It's, it's there. It's there. Okay, uh, some more digging ahead then. Um, but so so you were born in 1969. Yes. <laughs> Sun shivers down your spine. <laughs> uh, yeah, 69 was a good year. It was a very good year. But this book, Sag Harbor, um, which you're you're going on tour now um, for, um, it takes place in the 80s. The 80s are completely reveled in, and um, and it seems that it, you're drawing a lot from your own autobiography. Um, tapping in perhaps at least with like for example the the there's a bb gun moment in the the novel so this is all fiction mm-hmm. but then then in your own life story there's a parallel moment where do, do you uh, have a bb gun like yeah, bb right, pellet in yeah, your right there. I, ah, again we need some video feed don't <laughs> we i can vouch for it i see it but i hadn't noticed it before right i guess you know for many years i thought i would uh set off alarms and like airports but that didn't happen so basically, you know, the book is called Sag Harbor, and it's about some kids from New York City who go out to uh, this black part of the Hamptons called, um, called Azure Rest in the town of Sag Harbor. And they're from the city, and they, you know, run wild in the summer. Their parents only come out on weekends, and so they're left to their own devices. And that's and and that's normal then too for this time, because I almost found that hard to believe. That yes, I mean, you know. Uh, and, you know, and I, that was my experience. And so that's the jumping off point. And definitely I, you know, me and my brother, I was 15, he was 14. And we were just sort of out, left our own devices uh, in the middle of the week. Our friend Jay, a couple blocks over, was alone too. And there were, there were adults around. If, you know, if we got, had to go to the hospital or someone, you know, there are people around who could take us. Um, but it's not something that would happen now. So um, it seemed like a good place to start a, a novel. My previous books have been, start off from, I guess more intellectual propositions I wanted to explore, like problems I wanted to sort of get at. Uh, but I, I, I'd avoided writing, using stuff in my personal life. Well, well, how do you feel about the coming-of-age novels, or is that something? That... Well, I hated them growing up. Like, I didn't like Holden Caulfield. Like, I thought he was like a whiny, you know, something-something. And, you know, if you... If Thank like, you, like, and the FCC thanks you. <laughs> like, if I went around... In my household, saying everybody's a phony, like my parents would say, and you know, it's like, yeah, we told you, you know, when you were two, that everyone's a phony. So I could never relate to Catcher in the Rye, 
And when I realized I wanted to write about Sag Harbor and the summer of 85, I didn't want to inject like these, the sort of fake melodrama where like the kids find a body and then like Stand By Me starts playing or like uh, there are two kids on the branch and the one kid shakes the branch the other kid dies. And That's your other... book in 10 years from now <laughs> when everything's going to... Yeah. So I didn't want to do like fake, you know, fake action like Jaws or whatever. So I wanted to try and elevate these small mundane personal moments to the stuff of fiction, of, of, of art. So first crappy, like how can I narrate the first crappy job, first kiss, um, a BB gun fight and make it and make it transcend its quotidian or, origins and become, you know, a worthwhile story. But, but could that also be what's, what's also important about it? Because that there's a genuineness there that's a, a different type of depth. Well, I, I think, you know, when people can relate to it, people relate to it because it is ordinary. There's not some sort of life-changing, transcendent uh, moment. It's really a sort of, you know, I think we're a collection of small moments that change us over time, and I wanted to sort of narrate that. You know, the main character... And so Benji. that was in your head, Coulson, when you, when you, like, how did this project actually begin? Was it something that you just, um, because you went back to Sag Harbor and there was something about, like, that, those memories or those things that like, you look at something, but you see the layers behind it, or, like, what, what started... What started um, the project for you? Well, you know, I hadn't gone out to Sag Harbor for a long time because I went to college and then I was like, too, you know, the hand things are too bougie. I don't want to be out there. You know, I'm a hipster. Uh, but then just started visiting my, my mother who moved out there full time and renting my aunt's place. It's just a nice, mellow place. And so I'd have friends out. And each time I would try to tell them, like, that's so-and-so's house or that's the kid who used to beat me up. And then my sister beat him up. And then my, his mother beat up my mother. Like the, the stories just kept getting more and more extravagant. And I, and I realized that there was such a history of to the place. And it hadn't been told. People didn't really know about this black community in the Hamptons. And uh, the fact that we were left on our own was sort of like a good proposition to move from. So um, I wanted to write about it. And then I had to figure out how to structure it. And since there isn't this, you know, a strong linear plot, the idea is that the voice, you know, Benji's voice and Benji's perspective are enough of a, provide enough narrative propulsion propulsion to pull you through. I didn't, I, I asked the, the publishers, but I wasn't able to get the books books in time, like to have like more of a, a scope of your work. And you're right, I could have gone to the library. <laughs> you're unprepared, but that's okay. Life is <laughs> hey, short. look at all this. Paper. Yeah, yeah, you're very prepared. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, um, uh, but but um, but this but but coming so so I read about you mm -hmm, right yeah. in the prep of things, um, but not the actual uh, getting the sense of the words themselves. But but when I came, the to actual primary sources. Yes, your yes, primary what, sources. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. No, it's different. I mean, it just it's you know um, the projects seem vastly different, but it seems like something that almost. In a weird way, coming of age as a writer, where you felt more solid about some sort of, not voice, because this is obviously a different voice than what would have been coming before, but but do you think that's why this book is possible now, rather than your first book that's based on autobiography? Well, yeah, I mean, the cliche is that your first book is, you know, drawn very directly from your personal experience. And I was so self-conscious when I started writing in the 90s, I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to do, like, the Gen X novel or, like... It opens with like Kurt Cobain's death, and you're coming to grips, and like you know that sort of thing, which is going on, which is sort of common in the, in the mid '90s. Um, so I started off being more oddball, and you know, figuring out how to talk about race or technology and culture in different ways. So through elevator inspectors, 
That's weird. Uh, through John Henry days. Otis. <laughs> oh, <my God. laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and now, you know, definitely I hated adolescence and I found it excruciating just to think about it. So it took 20 years to be able to uh, sort of process it and figure out what I could use from it that could serve a story. And then just technically, uh, whenever I tried a, a first-person voice for a full book, for a full book, it always ended up lapsing to my own voice. And so it took, you know, five books in to be able to have a first-person narrator for 300-something pages that was um, a character and not some version of, not, not, not myself, if you know what I'm saying. Yes, I do. And so 300 pages or so. Well, how does it turn out? I mean, I guess when I handed it in, it was like three, three, three fifty. <laughs> now it's two seventy. But yeah, yeah. That is so. So actually, there was a moment where at some point you realized it had like the character um, uh, Ben Benji had morphed into not being some some cusp of you. Then. Well, you know, I mean, if I could have used like more of myself, I mean, you know, my experiences are in there. So I worked in an ice cream store for three summers. Uh, big Olaf. Big Olaf. But I did not have like a racist incident with my boss and, and then try and sabotage like his freezers. So, I mean, <laughs> right. I did add, try to add something to my uninteresting life. Like I, my friends aren't that interesting and I'm not, I'm not interesting. So I have to make up things that happened. So The way of the writer. Yes. The observer. Um, I mean, I would love to do some sort of memoir where... By the way, you seem very interesting, Colson. Thank you. On radio, you know, you, people can't see me. Um, I'm not sure what that means. <laughs> and his <laughs> his boring hand gestures. <laughs> um, so, uh, um, oh yeah, um, you know, it, I, I wanted to say basic character on my friend John, but each time John appeared, he would do something unJohn like because the overriding purpose is to serve the story, and so I'd have to change things, and so. Each time he appears or opens his mouth or walks onto the chapter, he's doing something unlike my friend because there's a higher purpose. And so, while, you know, when I was organizing the book, I thought, oh, and here's the, here's the you know, my friend Billy. But um, it didn't work out that way. And were, were people sort of those friends, were they disappointed? Did they want to see more of, or do they see themselves in the book? Well, you know, I mean, all those guys I hung out with I haven't seen in a long time. Some of them still go out to Sag Harbor, but, or different times. You know, I'm only out there for three weeks. So... Um, the book's been out, you know, for a few weeks, and I haven't heard from them, so we'll see what they think. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> All right, well, let's take a short break. You're listening to Living Writers today on the program, Colson Whitehead. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be back. Go 
Talking glass everywhere. People pissing on the stage. You know they just don't care. I can't take the smell. Can't take the noise. Got no money to move out. I guess I got no choice. Rats in the front room. Roaches in the back. Junkies in the alley with the baseball bat. I tried to get away, but I couldn't get far. Cause a man with the touch of repossessed my car. Don't push me. Cause I'm close to the edge. I'm trying not to lose my head. <laughs> It's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. Standing on the front stoop, hanging out the window, watching all the cars go by. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, you've got living writers here. And today on the program, Colson Whitehead. He's in town with his latest novel, Sag Harbor. Um, and, and a quick shout out. Thanks, Alex Belhodge, for, for engineering so nicely today, as always. Um, so, Colson, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> um, in, in The New Yorker, I think when you like when you burst onto the scene, I think I don't have the date here, but John Updike uh, called you ambitious and, uh, and scintillating. That's very nice of him. <laughs> yeah. How does it feel to be scintillating? Um... Uh, well, you know, I mean, I think there's like, you know, my private self, which is 95%, you know, in my house, walking around, working, that's where I work and live. And I'm just sort of uh, padding around in my dirty pajamas, surfing the web. Not trying to be scintillating. Not trying to be scintillating. And then, you know, then your book comes out and, and it's out into the world and people have responses to it and you talk about it. And sometimes you understand what they're saying, sometimes you don't. But it's all very, you know, it's all very separate and external. Like, there's no sort of... There's a real disconnect between what what comes out in uh, the press and like what is actually going on with the process and how you live every day. Yeah. Yeah. So the so when the book is in the the world in a marketing sense, like when it's out there, rather than when you just finish it or you've made the story, um, then that's a, that's a different part of you that's called upon to to be out there, sort of getting the word out i like your youtube clip though i thought that was smart well yeah I mean, well i mean you know in the age of it's a brief tour of uh, sag harbor colson walks you around so you can check that out on youtube if you yeah want. my publisher was like oh the new thing is oh. youtube and so they sent a, a film crew out well this one guy and he maybe walked around and did like a four minute video uh which is interesting because you know my first book came out in 99 and I did some small videos like BarnesandNoble.com, and they were trying out different things like weird like promo videos. But at that point, there was no common platform, so things were like Real Player or this was QuickTime, and that was a sort of you know became a sort of flop because just because you go to Barnes and Noble doesn't mean you have Real Player and yada yada. And so I, you know I've been around. It's only been 10 years, but it's been cool to see how the promo thing changes. Well, because almost everyone has a website now, right? People so have websites, you have and then like. Um, so it's a promo video and it seems new, but they, I, we were doing them 10 years ago. It's just now there's a common platform and so everyone can see them. You have to download something for 20 minutes on your modem in order to play it. And so it's, it, you know, it's like different, the same thing's going on, but it's a d different time. Is, is it interesting to you as a writer, do you ever look at the feedback? Cause you know, of course with YouTube, for example, um, then there's of course all the comments and so to see what people yeah i mean say or, you know that could seem poisonous after well I, i mean or in a good or bad way no like, there's, yeah. there's youtube comments there's like blog comments you know there's comments on amazon so you have to figure out like what you can handle because you get like some stinker and it's just there for like years and it's there forever frankly and what are you gonna do like you know have a flame war with some guy on amazon or youtube so you have to like 
learn to keep your distance. And if you're going to be curious, be prepared that you know someone's going to give you one star and say, you know, this guy's a joker. Right, right. Um, but you're not. I'm not a joker. <laughs> yeah, you're not. Um, in fact, in the book, I was I was wondering, going back to Sag Harbor, um, which in a little while we'll, we'll hear um, a, a piece from. Um, it's it's when you're you're in the book. At least my experience felt like it was in some ways like a very quiet book, but the things were were building. But it was a quiet. It's like a, a being there. Um, with these characters um but i did notice there are moments where um there's these allusions to um maybe some of the friends like a friend dying or because when for example we've talked about the bb gun that there's this um episode in the book and and then there's um it kind of connects to that that um or it's hinted at that a couple of the friends don't come out, you know, much later on, not that summer of 85. But um, can you talk about that? Like, was that conscious that um, that element of, I don't know. And there's darkness with the family where there's there's the violence. It feels like the undercurrent. And uh, do you want to talk about that yeah, a little sure, bit? Sure, sure. I mean, um, uh, yeah, there's not a conventional plot, but there is sort of, you know, obviously forward movement. Um, some of it is seasonal, we're being pulled through the summer. And some of it is just, you know, getting more of, more of a full idea of who these people are, who the parents are. So the parents don't really appear that much until chapter five. Then we get a full on sort of dose in the, uh, I guess what I always call the barbecue from hell chapter. Um, so, uh, um, in the, in I was the, surprised <laughs> that at the, like when he finally, when, you know, when Benji gets to eat some of it, I thought it would be different. Right. Um, so, uh, uh, in terms of the BB, you know, the, the narrator is an adult looking back on his childhood. And, and for me, I couldn't have done a 15 year old voice for 300 pages. I would have gone crazy. So I needed an adult perspective, organizing his life and making this sort of, raw material and shaping it and having a sort of critical perspective uh, on it. And so he does have this knowledge of stuff that's after the summer, where people are going. And um, uh, Is that why with, when somebody... Well, actually, no, Colson, go... Well, I wondered about... Because um, I was read that it said the, there was... Um, someone had asked you about, had you intended a young adult uh, category for it? And that that was one of those moments where you did respond to them because that sort of went out of proportion it seemed to me that like where someone had said that you were upset by that and and yeah. and i liked your res i would you like well yeah i mean now you know it's like some completely random blogger was like colson white had got huffy when someone asked him if his book should be marketed as ya and then like another blogger who writes a lot about stuff on the on the web on, about books like can you get, care to comment and so it was like <laughs> Yeah, you know, a mini scandal about nothing, and and, a term, and you know at the conference I was just like I don't do marketing. I'm a writer. You know, you talk, go to the marketing panel if you want to talk about marketing. Uh, I don't you know think about how thing about that end of things. Um, so and then they took that as sort of a rebuff or something that you thought there was something wrong with the YA or or. But I wondered when you were talking about the voice if that doesn't have something to do with it because it's not as if you're writing um, it as if it's this 15-year-old voice that keeps, there's this uh, this other presence. Yeah, there. I mean, people cheat, you know, they'll have like a, a really precocious genius 12-year-old narrator, and that's how they get around the fact that the limited perspective. And so it's a, a precocious, you know, child prodigy who's narrating, who's a 12-year-old narrating. That's not, you know, uh, most of us aren't prodigies when we're 15. We're just like numbskull teenagers. And so I do want to talk about numbskullness, but I don't want to have it 
uh, articulated in the words of a numbskull. Right. So, <laughs> or be at the steering wheel of the book. Sort of yeah, thing. yeah. So um, there's that. Um, but the darkness of the family, because I sort of took you away from, from that. like those. Well, yeah, I mean, that's just, you know, adding a new layer. You know, you have, you set well, a baseline. Tension. and it's, it's tension. You create a baseline of what the summer's about. And then um, each chapter, I want to sort of ramp up the dysfunction a little bit. That's what I was thinking. And so it's, you know, two chapters of setup, and then we... Um, we meet Benji, and then he does something in an ice cream parlor, and that's like one sort of twist on his character because he's been a certain way for 100 pages, and then he does an action that perverts that. And the next chapter is the BB gun fight, which is a rehearsal for later kind of fights. I, I think I picked 85 because I was, I was a teen then, and I, I know it. Uh, but also, you know, the kids love pop culture, so the, the films and music they love are play a big part and hopefully can talk about larger things. And so 85... Uh, hip hop is still kind of corny. Uh, it has like there are groups like UTFO who dress like the village people. They have characters and they're really corny. But five years later from that, from then, you're gonna have Ice Cube and NWA, and the music is commercialized, gangsterized, and these kids um, and they sort of the innocence of the music is gone. In the same way that that the boys who are 15 in '85 will be in their late teens and. Uh, in a couple of years, and it'll be young black men and targets and have a whole different uh, negotiation with the world. And so the sort of... But there's also, you have some of that negotiation in the, their lives right now because there's moments where, and it's not like you're, you know, getting the two by four out by any means, It's but it's like, it's sort of chilling because it'll be, because um, one of the friends will have a car. Like, so he gets to be, you know, kind of big cheese and they all go with him in the car. And, but there's this idea of, well, you don't go too far because something, uh, I wish I had the page actually, but, um, because something racial might happen. You don't don't know know where the exits are or something. Yeah. I mean, just think, Oh yeah. I mean, there, you know, Sag Harbor, because there's the beach community idea where you think, well, Oh no, everything must be okay for everyone here because sometimes, there's this illusion that class um, economics or something then changes some racial tension. You, uh, I don't know. I, I know what you're saying. Uh, yeah, I mean, just because in the Hamptons, it's not all rosy. I mean, what do you call a um, a black man with a PhD? The N word. I mean, it's like you know, no matter what, you know, that's like an old joke from, from Malcolm X. Um, <laughs> um, don't be shocked. Um, I know. Apparently, I'm whiter than ever right now, right? Oh God. So um, yeah, no. If, if they strayed, you know, if we strayed out of Sag Harbor and we didn't know what was up, we did have sort of paranoid fantasies. I mean, we are still targets in this mostly white. Um, uh, part of the island and if we do if we do end up going up the wrong street in Southampton you know the cops will follow us you know it's uh, so and uh, and you, there's a moment also a subtle moment on the beach where like he's because they can see the beach from the house and there's people who were tourists and um, obviously not residents but then they came down and walking along the beach and then they realized that they were around people that didn't look like them so they kind of turned around again so yeah uh, yeah I mean it, just, you know the, the um, the folks in the book have their own beach, and it's uh, it's all black. But you know, this white tourist will stroll down, and then suddenly they'll sort of realize, oh, you know, everyone's looking at me, and turn back. And the same thing happens when the kids go to the white beach, the Southampton or East Hampton. Uh, they're the only black bodies on the beach, and they realize that the same sort of scanning out from the uh, decks 
um, of the beach houses that they did on their black beach is happening to them, except there's white people watching them also. And so, you know, you stray, stray out of your territory and your subject becomes object and object becomes subject. I feel like I keep taking you away also from that aspect. You said so each chapter, like things are becoming slightly more ramped up um, or, or, or dysfunctional even. And, um, well, and I, I mean, like you're, you know, you, you create effects by ju juxtaposition. And so if you have um, uh, a childhood caper, which has elements of, of <laughs> childhood caper, that's great, of, of the sinister and then... Um, you sort of expand upon that sort of darkness in the next chapter. And then, you know, you have the, the caper where they try to get into the, the club. And so you have a really dark chapter and then you juxtapose it with a more sort of light um, chapter. And I think, and I think that um, evokes the dissociation that's going on. Because, like, you know, Benji is sort of aware of what's going on with his family, but not totally. And he's sort of in denial of, like, his family dysfunction. And so in the same way that that kind of personality retreats into ignoring what's going on the book is sort of ignoring the darkness of the, dis the dysfunction of the family and going into this sort of more lighter thing about uh getting into a club and trying to see lisa lisa and mm -hmm. um grandma and utfo and so you know you know hopefully you know i'm manipulating the, the, the reader's mood you know and that's my way of moving us forward and, and changing up the rules of the book from chapter to chapter if that makes sense it does but it does seem like that that um that 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 the voice or the perspective of um, is aware of of that level of um, I don't know like something that's just uh, almost like like with the interactions with the mom and dad where and then the, uh, Reggie finds the a note that the mother has sketched out like yells at me in front of my friends or these things like you just think oh you know there's so much. And they're not, they're not really commented on. I mean, or that the sister is not there because yeah. she doesn't want to be there. Not just because it's too bougie or <laughs> bougie. Bougie. <laughs> okay. Well, let's take a short break, and I'll have some elocution lessons here. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel today. Colson Whitehead and his novel Sag Harbor will be back. Yo, MD. Yeah, what's up, man? Think of that girl they call Roxanne. She's all stuck up. Why you say that? Thought you wouldn't give a guy like me no rap. Man, she was walking down the street, so I said, hello. I'm Kango from your T.F.O. And she's so, I said, so. Baby, don't you know I can sing rap dancing just one show? Because I'm Kango, Mr. Sophisticator. As far as I know, ain't nobody created from beginning to end and to beginning. I never knew because I'm all about winning, but if I was to lose, I wouldn't be upset, cause I'm not a gambler, I don't bet, I don't be, you know, casino, and baby, why you nizzo, the is I is, the grizz ain't kissing, kizzo, I thought you'd be impressive, give me devious rap, I thought I had a book inside my sinister trap, I thought it'd be a piece of paper, there was nothing like that, I guess that's what I could for thinking, ain't that right, black, I thought I had it in the palm of my hand, but man, oh man, if I was grand, I'd bang, Roxanne, 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 Kango, I don't think that you're dense, but you went about the matter with no experience, you should know. She doesn't need a guy like you, she needs a guy like me, with a high IQ. And she'll take to my rap, cause my rap's the best. The educator rapper FD will never fess. 
So when I met her, I wasted no time. But stuck up Roxanne, paid me no mind. She thought my name was Barry, I told her it was Gary. She said she didn't like it, so she told to call me Barry. She said she loved to marry, my baby she would carry. And if he had a baby, he named the baby Harry. Her mother's name is Mary, which is really quite contrary. Her face is very hairy, and you can say it's scary. So does it not every, our father's a fairy. His wife's a secretary, and son's a memory. Back in January, or was in February. But every time I see this rhyme, it makes me kind of weary. It's only customary to get this commentary. You'll never find a rhyme back into any dictionary. Welcome back. You're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, and today, Colson Whitehead, um, reading from Sag Harbor very soon. Yeah, you can't, you can't say uh, M-O-F-O, right? Like mofo? Oh, <laughs> like, yes, yeah, yes, yeah, I wouldn't yes, say the, I wouldn't say yes, the real, yeah. Because it's, yeah, yeah, it's yeah syllables, yeah. so yeah, that yeah. seems fine. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Excellent. Not that. I was going to say, we should have sign language, and I was like, well, we do, I guess. Yeah, there's a review on Amazon. It's like, I like the book, but it's a little rough on the language. But I guess, you know, in terms of like the profanity, because like they curse a lot, the kids. Yeah. And oh. so there's a lot of profanity. So I guess it was like some, you know, older person who but, didn't yeah, like... That's true. I was like, I think I must hang out with hooligans. <laughs> and I was like, what? Really? Yeah. It's, just, I mean, it's a standard seven word you can't say on TV, but... Right, right. On, on radio. Yeah. Okay. Well, um... Well, let's see. Well, yeah. So, Sag Harbor, you're in the. We should mention that you're here in town for Bookfest. Yes. Colson, and and tomorrow. Well, is it mean, airing tonight? It, no. Or saying right it's, now? We're on Wednesdays. No, I wish. I wish it was live. That would be great. But it's Wednesdays, so we're in a time warp right. here. But so um, I was in town. Yeah. And although I get yeah. <laughs> now we're completely confused. Where are we? Who are we? <laughs> yeah, the Bookfest. I'm excited. It should be fun. Yes. Today, today was the writers' conference, so I did a talk um, about the writers' craft. Ah, the crafty writers. Yes. <laughs> it's, um, I like that you had a, a title of an essay that was "Wow, fiction works." Well, yeah. I mean, I um, because I get invited to do like serious craft talks at colleges and stuff, but I have nothing to say, so I make fake. I do fake lectures, making fun of the idea of writing. Or not taking it as seriously. So whenever I do a, a, a talk about writing, it's like, a, it's like a parody. So how to write, how to write a memoir, you know, what is a poem. I liked your how to read paragraph, too. That was good. Yes, how to, yeah. I mean, um, uh, a close reading. Like, you know how to read. I mean, I'm reading this, so obviously you can't. Yeah, so. But you said your formative, your intellectual coming of age was at Oxford? Oh, well, that was a character. Oh, 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 oh girl. It, nice. Be careful when you look at things <laughs> in pieces. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that piece was sort of making fun of um, certain critics who are very leery of postmodernism and, to, you know, the, um, the Zadie Smiths, the Jonathan Franzens of the world who are, you know, it was a James Wood parody. So that's so... That's so. That's a, so. That's an example. Of an example what, of my what fake you're up to. craft. Yeah, okay. my fake craft talks. Yeah. And um and how and then is there a question session afterwards or? or yes, and then I'm, then I'm serious. You know. Then, okay. Yeah. <laughs> that must be pretty good. You're almost like the um, Stephen Colbert of <laughs> of the craft talks. Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's yeah. I mean, I think sometimes people get upset or they, you know they take notes for the first two minutes and they're like, oh man, and then they get into it. You know. Um, <laughs> Well, that, can we hear a bit of Sag Harbor then? Surely, that, surely. Okay. So, I mean, it's self-explanatory. Um, and nice, um, I picked 85, and then I, 1985 is the setting. And I had to figure out what would work in the book. And so it turns out that um, this horrible event happened, and 
Here we go. A few weeks earlier, the Coca-Cola company had discontinued their signature cola. They'd lost market share to Pepsi. Diet Coke, the sister brand, had been too successful, luring away consumers with the promise of thinner thighs, a figure more in line with that aerobicized you. The higher-ups hit upon a catastrophic solution. They decided to replace the most famous drink in the world with an imposter. I'd been addicted to Coke for years with a two or three can a day habit since the fifth grade. Starting around the same time, my schoolmates started stealing, shoplifting, now that I think about it. When my sister told me not to be so hyper, or my parents told me to knock it off, I vibrated with, vibrated with the strain of keeping still and wondered why nature had cursed me so. It wasn't until I was in high school that I learned what caffeine was. My love for Coke went beyond mere buzz, however. How could one not be charmed by the effervescent joviality of a tall glass of the stuff, the manic activity, activity of the bubbles, popping, reforming, popping anew, sliding up the inside of the glass to freedom, as if the beverage were, miraculously, caffeinated on itself? That tart first sip, preferably with the ice knocking against the lips with a, for an added sensory flourish, that stunned the brain into total recall of pleasure, all the Cokes consumed before, and all those impending Cokes, the long line of satisfaction underpinning a life. What forgiveness for the supreme disappointment of a fountain Coke that, that turned out to be fizzless and dead, or a lukewarm Coke that had been sitting for a while, falling away from its ideal temperature of 46.5 degrees Fahrenheit slash 8 degrees Celsius. All the bubbles fled so that, it, so that it had become a useless mud of sugar, which is what new Coke tasted like, actually. I remember when I first heard they were changing the formula— April 23rd, 1985. It was dinner time, and I'd wandered into the living room to ask my mother a question. I can't remember what it was, as it was erased by the terrible information. I walked in just in time to hear the newscaster say, A surprising announcement about an American classic. And somehow I knew... I stayed through the commercial break and watched as Roberto Gozieta, the CEO of Coca-Cola, cheered the end of the world. It was inconceivable, like tampering with the laws of nature. Hey, let's try gravity-free Tuesdays. Buckle up, mofos. From this day on, water is incredibly flammable. Let's see how that goes. I slunk back into my room, dizzy and confused. It was as if someone had popped the top of the world and let all the air out. Within days, I'd cornered the market, the local market on Old Coke in a grid defined by 106 to the north, 96th Street to the south, and from Amsterdam to the river, buying up what I could from the corner bodegas, the increasingly slick delis popping up on Broadway, and the assorted stationery stores of the hood. By the time New Coke started to, appeared, started to appear, a few days after the announcement, I was well prepared, with a huge stash in my closet, a prayer against doomsday. I had no dreams of profiteering, of selling my stock at a dear price to aficionados when the day came when the people of Earth discovered the treasure they destroyed. As if the cola were an exquisite lizard or spiny bivalve, driven to extinction in a race's savage drive to ruin. No, 
I wanted it all to myself, like an art thief who steals new descending a staircase or some key Picasso and hangs it on the wall of his own private gallery for his wicked and ingrown pleasure at peace with the fact that the world is unaware of his activities, and perhaps that is actually the point of the entire exercise. Although such a sentiment is probably not too surprising coming from a boy whose main recreation was masturbation. Thank you, Coulson. <laughs> um, that's great about the coke. I don't think I've ever, I, I don't think I've ever heard anyone write about it, and that was just right on. I know. We, I love coke. <laughs> <laughs> you can tell it comes through. <laughs> well, yeah, you gotta write what you know. So. Right, exactly. For it to be authentic. Yes. <laughs> to me. Um, so yeah, so that's one of the very real parts of the book. Um, so. So is it always that um, you're um, in your other other writing? Are you also always using because there's so much humor in that, too. Such an attention to this minute detail. And then. Um, and, and I don't know, with that voice, it just it seemed like such a great. You just start to like that was one of the moments where I just really loved the main character, where I just thought these obsessions and like the, almost a vulnerability. And and then what this leads to is yeah, like his one of yeah. his first big slip ups. Right. So well, I think, you know, his voice. I mean, I generally like to um, have some sort of form of humor in my books. And this voice definitely accommodates a lot of different types of humor. Um, the silliness about. The message by Grandmaster Flash, or like you know, this these sort of comic assigns. Um, so you know, with with this narrator, I was able to let it rip. With a book like The Intuitionist, where I am mostly playing it straight, and the main character is a very sort of repressed, and um, it's a fake detective novel, so the language, the sentences are very clipped. I couldn't have, I couldn't sort of, I can't have this sort of broad humor. And where there is humor, it's deadpan. You know, it's making fun of the premise that there are elevator inspectors who are important and have like beats and like ride around like cops. So the humor is different, but that's a very important component of how I see the world and, you know, and how I, you know, construct uh, my narratives. Um, in terms of like, you know, that close zoom in, yeah, I mean, that's like a feature of my writing. It's like get, getting. Uh, no matter what it is, like the sort of insane close-up on 46. things. 46.7 degrees or, or for the, right, how yeah. cold the Coke is. and um, yeah. Making it real and zooming in um, as close as I can uh, without sort of destroying the illusion. But having um, a lot of fun with breaking something down and figuring out how it works. And so I think it's, it's, it is actually funny that, because I asked Colson to read this part, so he humored me. Thank you. Um, but it's funny that I was wanting us to talk about sort of the darker elements, like some of the, the pathos or the, the tension. And then I <laughs> give us this comedic interlude. Um, so how, was it was it harder to write this these moments in this book because there weren't maybe the... You know, the, those, even if it's not like the, you know, like those moments with the elevators where it's, you're making these things up and they're important on their beats. And was this a, yeah, was it, I guess, hmm, is it, was it harder or easier? I don't mean that. What a, what a terrible no, yeah, question. They're always hard. They're always hard in different ways. And so with the intuitionist, I was learning how to write uh, a linear narrative. With John Henry Days, I was trying to figure out how to do a book with a lot of, with a decentralized character and sort of structure and with this I was trying to figure out how to make 
these mundane moments into an interesting story. And so each what, book, each book has its own problems you got to figure out. But what surprised you about the writing of this book that you couldn't have anticipated? Because it's sort of something you felt like you could do it now. You were, were ready to risk like this, at least like a, a setting of adolescence. Mm-hmm. And well, you know, so what surprised you? Whether or not um, uh, these disclosures are true, you know, Benji's, Benji's emotional disclosures or psychological disclosures are true to my life or not. I did have to, I do have to dig deep in order to get them out there. And so um, I decided early on that I was going to be just like do the full Monty. And even though it's going to be incredibly draining and excruciating, you know, describe what it is to be a horribly awkward teenager. Describe, you know, trying to make out with somebody. Describe, you know, some horrible parental dysfunction that you're embroiled in and can't escape. And so once I committed to doing it and doing it the best way I could, um, uh, you know, that was like the challenge. And it was also fun. And it was, you know, exhilarating. And it was very different than, you know, some. I mean, I've had moments like that in other parts of my book where I'm doing getting to some sort of emotional chapter that evokes in a response to me as like a writer and as a person and it happened a lot more with this book sort of revelations then <laughs> yeah. in some way <laughs> yeah um uh well, you yeah. know what we'll take a break and we'll come sure. back we'll come back for more revelations from colson whitehead um his novel sag harbor i'm t hetzel you're listening to living writers we'll be back soon Welcome back. You're listening to Living Writers today on the program, Colson Whitehead, and with his novel Sag Harbor, and uh, that was that was the Smiths. Yes, the Smiths, the lovely Smiths. And and uh, the '80s. <laughs> <laughs> you were you were denigrating the '80s on on the YouTube clip where you I think where you were saying maybe the '70s possibly could be worse, but or... yeah, I mean, I've been thinking about it. Like, what was worse, the '70s or the '80s? Uh, they're they're both sort of atrocious. Uh, to different degrees, but but yet we circle back to to honor them, like you know, especially in L.A. where the, the they flash back to '80s fashion 
kind of regularly now, <laughs> like every few years, it seems. Whatever, like. like in college, like the Artie dorm had like an 80s party like on January 1st, 1990. I mean, I think we, you know, <laughs> the, we go back to the 80s, you know, our favorite periods pretty quickly now. I mean, we're cycling through. So, um, I mean, I liked whatever, like four years ago when the whole electro clash thing happened or five years ago, seven years ago. When like early new wave stuff was coming, yeah, uh, and so now I feel like early new wave is back again. I see all these crazy kids walking around Brooklyn, you know, dressed like they're walking out of a um, Devo video. And so, but that, they're doing that like seven years ago. So we just keep cycling through over and over again. Yeah, it almost like when Interpol came out with their first album, it was like, ah, oh, great, because there was something so very familiar, even though, you know, doing it in their own way, of course, but it was, it was like having a Coke, a classic Coke. Sure. I mean, I feel, I felt like, you know, the boomers were in so such ascendancy for a long time that, uh, you know, they came of age in the 60s and that they've been controlled the mass media you know, and the, the means of, means of cultural production for so long. But now people in their 30s and 40s are taking over. And, and instead of having, like, you know, the inevitable annual documentary about the summer of love and, you know, it was a time of, of joy. It was a time of fringe vests, you know, and they put on, like, one pill makes you... St-. You know, like, they always, they always play the same Jefferson Airplane song. So how many times do you have to celebrate the summer of love? So I figure with this, you know, the people who grew up in the 70s and 80s are now in, t- are taking the reins of cultural production. And we're going to have, like, our star... You know, we're going to pay homage to Star Wars, you know, until... <laughs> And so the people who grew up in the 90s take over. So but now it's our time to go back to the 80s and force it down the throats of people older and younger than us. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> um, so was it in the 80s, though, when you first decided, you know, I, I'm a writer? Did you ever have that idea or was it just something you always did or something i mean because it said it said that you liked comic books and yeah and, I, mean, I, think I, yeah, I think i remember like reading the and, chris claremont john byrne x-men like in 81 and being like oh this would be a good job and all my friends who now write either want to draw or write like the x-men or, or spider-man so um and stephen king and stephen and, king you know like I loved like Carrie and Salem's Lot and The Shining and I th- and until really until I got to college I thought I would you know I would write like The Black Shining or The Black Salem's Lot if you took like st- a Stephen King novel and put like The Black in front of it like that's what I wanted to do and then I started reading The Modernists and stuff like that and that was like a different sort of take on things but right I guess I've not, I haven't thought of that like The Black Shining <laughs> why not you know, <laughs> you know like, well in the 70s you know with the rise of I was teaching a, a, a class on uh, great moments in black eg- existentialism which is unfortunate because I always stumble on the word existentialism but I had to say it also like 10 times a class so that was really awkward but um, I did a thing on like the gangster pose and like black exploitation and so uh, you know I assumed like all the the kids who were 18 and 19 had some familiarity with black exploitation, but of course they didn't because they were born in 1982 or whatever. So did you bring like Shaft and and like uh, I made I made them watch Shaft and Superfly, and then I showed them YouTube trailers of like all the all the black horror movies. So Blackenstein, Scream, Blackula, Scream, uh, the original Blackula, Abby was a, a ripoff of The Exorcist with a uh, it was a black Exorcist and it's huh. called Abby. Um, there weren't any Wolfman 
Black Wolfman movies. But there was like, you know, I found the trailer for The Thing with Two Heads, which is Ray Milland, you know, the actor. His head is transplanted onto the body of Rosie Greer, who's a, who's a, uh, a, uh, a prisoner who's volunteered for this experiment. But then, um, but Raymond Land is a racist, so when he wakes up and he's attached to Rosie Greer, um, comedy ensues. You know, he looks at, you know, Rosie Greer, like, whips out his junk, and, like, he's like, you know, big penis jokes. And then, like, he's having sex with his lady, and Raymond Land is, like, you know, having a confused response. And uh, I, I saw it, um, I remember seeing it as a kid, and you can say junk on, you can say junk. Um, so uh, existential <laughs> junk. <laughs> I remember seeing it at a uh, uh, a black exploitation festival at the Film Forum in New York a couple years ago, and um, this is really off topic. But they filmed a two minute uh, car chase sequence, and then literally looped it for 15 minutes. And so you see the same <laughs> like cars jumping off from the same angle over and over again, and it just goes on forever. Like they they ran out of you know there was not much of a plot to go on with originally but a decent score <laughs> yes the score was great and then this 20 minute car chase we're just like how long like they really just didn't care it was a different time <laughs> yeah and maybe you went into the theater and with different not just popcorn who knows <laughs> well yes yes no definitely <laughs> so it was really maybe you didn't notice that it was the same some car coke. jumping you went in with some coke some classic right, coke some, some, yeah, some classic coke exactly um so well so when you were a, a kid did you like write in a journal or were you starting to sketch out comics or or what well we, i remember like we my friends and i had a um a mad magazine Ripoff called Cheapo, but because Cheapo, it was called it was called Cheapo, <laughs> and um, but we just we only did like Star Wars parodies, and so we, like our it was our our dream to perfect the Star Wars parody, and so it'd be like Cheapo, you know, issue two, you know, back to Star like you know Star Wars. <laughs> what like, would be an example of a sketch that you would? I can't even remember. Just like you know, like. Um, Something with Princess Leia, no doubt, <laughs> and her buns. Not even oh, that you know that was you know it was like second second you know third grade, and so it was all about like Darth you know we, some there was, we had a, a, a kid who could draw Darth Vader. For, it was all about what you could draw really well, and so that became the basis for any joke. If you couldn't draw Obi Wan Kenobi, you wouldn't have any Obi Wan Kenobi jokes. So it was all like Darth Vader heads and TIE fighters like those. So it was a lot of that with like I think Thought Bubble was coming out. You know I'm not really sure. I can't you know <laughs> right. I don't have any copies of it, but. Well, that's a shame because yes. <laughs> that would be some. So it was sometime. So did you come to like writing more as a reader first, like finding some sort of or is it just like it actually when you were talking about the Stephen King, it sounded maybe like you were intrigued by the actual his construction, because with King, you can kind of see some things that not in a bad way, but what some things that are at work. Well, I remember reading Carrie in seventh grade and, and like you de deconstruct things very well. Like you just like how you talk about your own work and uh, yeah. But well, Carrie. Ca Carrie, you know, has, um, it's been a long time, but he has like newspaper reports of like the day Carrie goes crazy interspersed before the day of the prom. And so like, there's this, um, Structural element, structural element, which is reportage of this in, impending event, and we sort of get sketchy details before. And I was like, oh, like why is this news report here? And like that, you know, that's sort of like, you know, oh, kind can of you do junior, that? Junior Pomo <laughs> in Carrie, and um, these sort of extra textual um, elements that he introduced. And I remember thinking, oh, you know, I didn't put it this way, but 
oh, you make there's a different effect from when you get this um, foreshadowing in this sort of sketchy foreshadowing, and that creates a different way of reading the story. So I remember like thinking, oh, it's cool that he's doing a different sort of horror story. When you when you were at the Village Voice for two years, did that give you some time to start? Because to to like be a writer, or did you take that job because you already sort of you know fancied yourself a writer? <laughs> all, all those things. I mean, I took it because I I read The Voice and loved it, and I wanted to be one of these sort of like free range cultural dudes who writes about TV in the morning and Derrida at night or whatever, um, deconstructing hip deconstructing hip hop and stuff like that. Um, but I, I, thought, I saw myself as a fiction writer primarily, but I didn't actually write fiction. I was not very good at it, and I didn't actually write anything. Uh, it was journalism uh, when I was at The Voice for like, you know, five years. Uh, having to produce, having to sit down for five hours and learning how that attention span, being uh, following a deadline so that you can get paid, so that you can have money to go out. And so um, I learned a lot of good habits. Also, it's a public forum, so if you write a great, great article, People are like, oh, congratulations. In a dud article, you heard nothing. So I learned, you know, what if I was being too self-indulgent, you know, not to do it next time, do more of this next time because you get more positive affirmation. So like five years, five years of doing that, I was freelance, and that and the freelance lifestyle gave me enough time to do fiction. Like I wouldn't, have, I couldn't, I can't write if I have a full-time job. I teach occasionally, but if I have to teach, I can't write. So I need like a whole day free uh, to get stuff done. And so, do you have? Um like a first novel that's in, in, in a drawer, like what you always like the, that stereotypical, uh, drawer that's out there that we all have apparently. <laughs> yeah. It's about, it's, uh, because I didn't want to do, do something autobiographical. I decided to do something that was probably drew more from my journalism, critical work. And so it was about a, um, a Gary Coleman-esque child star who grows up and is abused by the mass, uh, by a mass media combine and um, so I wrote this thinking it was very good, and then I was surprised that a, a, you know, a book about a Gary Coleman-esque child star wouldn't find its footing in the marketplace. Um, so that... I shouldn't laugh. <laughs> I was shocked. No one else was shocked. I would think the film would already be op options or whatever. <laughs> but I learned my lesson, so I started writing about elevator inspectors. And that well, maybe maybe it's maybe it's good to yeah, it sure <laughs> did. Oh, geez, All, like listing the like so many prizes and 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 uh, accolades, but but maybe you'll unlearn that lesson because I think there should be you know a Gary Coleman esque child star novel. There is in my drawer. In your drawer. Yeah. Well, maybe there's um uh, a sequel. Yes, there could be a sequel. <laughs> Well, thanks for telling us what's in your drawer, Colson Whitehead. Yeah, it's my pleasure. <laughs> and thanks for being here today. And uh, um, you've been listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, uh, we've been lucky to have Colson Whitehead here with his book, Sag Harbor. Um, thanks for listening, Ann Arbor. Thanks for streaming. Thanks to Alex Belhodge. Um, until next time. Who's that?
This is Free Speech Radio News for Wednesday, May 20th, 2009. In Cairo, I'm Ayal Batrawi, sitting in for Aura Bugado. On today's newscast, we take a look at the politics behind Obama's campaign promise to shut down Guantanamo Bay Prison. We'll hear how one man has turned the economic downturn into an upstart. And we head to Colombia, where the line between a decades-long internal war and booming drug trade have blurred to create a massive refugee crisis. Stay tuned for that and more after this news. I'm Jess Burns with headlines for Free Speech Radio News. U.S. Treasury Secretary Timothy Geithner said today that U.S. financial institutions have started to heal. Geithner also reported that 124 out of the original $700 billion in TARP funds are still available. From Washington, D.C., FSRN's Matt Pearson reports. Testifying before the Senate Banking Committee, Geithner offered what he called conservative estimates of remaining TARP funds. He said about $99 billion remain unspent and expects $25 billion in repayments over the next year. He says that money will be recycled back into the TARP program rather than back to taxpayers. Geithner continued to defend the bailout of financial giant AIG. He indicated that the government might be involved with the company for some time. I do not believe that the system today can withstand the effects of a failure of this institution to meet its obligations. Geithner also announced a new public-private investment program, which would combine private funds with up to $100 billion from the government to finance the sales of 